0: In some ways this week has been a warm-up for the real retreat which starts tomorrow for those of you who are leaving uh, this is a practice <laughs> for the real challenge when we leave and we go back into our familiar world of relationships and commitments and responsibilities and and the familiar environment where we can so easily get pulled back into our patterns of being where we can easily lose our awareness the awareness that allows us to actually see the patterns clearly so that perhaps we don't get as lost or caught up in those patterns when we have familiarity Around us, whether it's people or jobs, um, our home, our possessions, we can fall back in. We can fall back into those habits. And so, we're hoping that the insights and the the transformation that has happened for it seems every one of you here has some potency to carry itself out into the world it's not like you carry it i watched my words there it's like you don't carry it out you can't really carry it out because that's not how insight works that's not how transformation works it's a transformation of that one who wants to do it who thinks it needs to do it the one who takes responsibility for the way things are. It's like we we begin to let go of that one so that we are moving more from the integrity of our being, where our insights land, where our insights take shape, and create some change that then gets expressed in the world, through the heart. So we say through the heart. So I think that's why retreats are so important, and for those of us who have done a number of retreats, there's a number of people who are very experienced here. We know really the potency of time on retreat because in a way it's a way of of recharging that battery of awareness. So that when we go back out into the familiar, there is more awareness. The awareness is stronger, the awareness is brighter. There is more insight into the way things are. So one of the threads of what we've been examining over the days here is this way we do get identified with the patterns of our personality. The patterns of minds and patterns that we see running through the mind of 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 judgment and comparing and expectation and ideals and the way we configure ourselves into someone particular, the fixed view we get of ourselves, this sort of sense of identity that we have of ourselves to begin to look at how that actually takes shape, how we actually form this sense of ourselves and looking at ways that we can begin to be more free of that conditioned self, so that we are actually experiencing ourselves in a in a more true or authentic way. So many of our practices here over this week has been to connect with this way of, of this authentic way of being and speaking and listening and engaging and working. So authentic means that we're connected with ourselves. In a true or reality, the reality being um, not so identified with just the patterns of mind that are telling us who we are, the way things need to be, but something that is more freed up from that. When we we connect with a a part of our being. Sometimes it feels like it's more in the body than in the head. You know, rather than just going into the the thinking and conceptual patterns of the mind, we we can see, it kind of feels like we drop down into the body where we can experience more of ourselves, more the more more fullness of ourselves, rather than just what's happening in the head or the brain or our thoughts, which is where so many people live. I was saying in the group the other day, there's this this phrase that you may know the, the exact phrase, but it's something like Mr. Jones lives a short distance from his body. You know, you've heard that. You know, it's sort of like sort of like we're not really here. We're kind of out there a little bit. And so we're learning how to come more be more embodied in that in the the wholeness of who we are. And so we look at the patterns, we look at the patterns of our mind, the way we get identified in our question, the first question today, we were examining that, um, what is difficult about taking your seat? Taking your seat with the metaphor of the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree, saying, I resolve not to get up until I understand the way things are. Taking our seat, being firm, being steady with what's important, with what's true for us. And Mara, being the archetype of the one who comes and distracts us, who pulls us off of our seat, tantalizes us, disguises himself as something much more uh, exciting than sitting under the Bodhi tree and trying to get enlightened. And I found this passage after Catherine was talking about this morning, which is is a kind of a... um, a wonderful rendering of this story of the Bodhisattva's struggle. The Bodhisattva is the name of the Buddha before he actually became the Buddha. The Bodhisattva's Bodhisattva's struggle with Mara. And it goes like this. Whirlwind, rocks, thunder and flames, smoking weapons with keen edges, burning coals, hot ashes, boiling mud, Blistering sands in fourfold darkness, the antagonist Mara hurled against the bodhisattva, but the missiles were all transformed into celestial flowers and ointments by the power of Gautama's ten perfections. Mara then deployed his daughter's desire, longing, and lust, surrounded by voluptuous attendants, but the mind of the great being was not distracted. The god finally challenged the Bodhisattva's right to be sitting on the immovable spot, flung his razor-sharp discus angrily, and bid the towering host of the army to let fly at him with mountain crags. But the future Buddha only moved his hand to touch the ground with his fingertips, and thus bid the goddess Earth bear witness to his right to be sitting where he was. She did so with a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand roars so that the elephant of Mara fell upon its knees in obe- obeisance to the future Buddha. The army was immediately dispersed and the gods of all the world scattered garlands. So that is our story too. It's a mythological story, but it's our story. We are doing the same thing to see if we can breathe, stay present, stay here. No matter what the mind as Mara is hurling at us, can we stay here and say, as Catherine was saying this morning, this, this afternoon, I see you, Mara. I see you, Mara. Staying firm with the earth as our witness. For me this has been a very helpful metaphor in my practice is to see these aspects of my mind as Mara. In ways not me it's not who i am in my most fundamental level i am buddha nature i have a i am the enlightened essence but mara comes and distracts me from knowing this and so sometimes i've actually used that very directly as i see you mara when i was with one of my teachers in india punjiji and i was having some very powerful experiences with punjiji the doubt would start to creep into my mind, say, the doubt that says, who, you know, like Catherine would who do you think you are? You think you're having experiences that actually mean anything? You know, these are just other, these are just more experiences, and what are experiences good for? You know, don't get on your high horse. Don't think anything's really happening for you. And I said, oh, I see you, Mara. I see you, Mara. You're trying to throw me off of my own empowerment, my own right to know who I am. And it, was, it, it came spontaneously, that recognition, that reminder that I didn't have to be deceived, I didn't have to be pulled off, that I could allow myself to know what this Master was pointing me towards. And it was very powerful. I felt I was in that strugg- struggle, just like that story. know being pulled off of my seat and yet there was the knowing from my my practice from my own uh, insights i knew that this was mara well mara in the form of my own mind which is how mara comes trying to deceive me so that i would stay in the familiar i wouldn't move out of the familiar which is where the self is very happy, the ego-self is very happy. So our practice is not to identify with this conceptual mind, with this structure that is trying to define us and tell us who we are. Someone asked the Buddha to summarize his teachings. And very famous the way the Buddha summarized his teachings, he says, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. One sentence. The whole of the Buddha's teaching. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. Because what we do is we try to find Things, whether it's our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, our body, the way we look, our clothes, our possessions, our partners. Ah, look who I'm with. Our cars, our homes, how much money we have in the bank. You know, the whole cultural message of who we should be. And how we should be, to really be somebody, somebody who's worthwhile, somebody who's important, somebody who, you know, can make a difference in the world or whatever we put that value on. So we, we have to find things. Well, I'm a I'm a Buddhist practitioner. You know, we can find anything, you know, that kind of the badge and kind of, you know, shine our badge and look at me, you know, I've got this or I've got that. And sometimes, you know, people, you know, renounce their previous worldly life to come to the spiritual path, but then they find all these other things just to build up themselves, you know, like how well their meditations are going, what kind of meditation experiences they're having, who they're hanging out with, you know, how many retreats they've done. You know, it's like it just becomes another substitute for that definition until we really feel deeper, we sense deeper and understand the Buddhist teachings, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I am I. Nothing. So not a thought, not a feeling, not a sensation, not the way we look. Our health, our ill health, whatever this can we, can we can we see it for what it is, that it's changing? Everything changes in every moment. That doesn't have any. Nothing has any capacity to satisfy us for very long, because either it changes, it dies away, or we change our relationship to it. We lose interest in it. You know, thing, things don't stay permanent. And yet, that is we've been talking about this week as I, like, knowing that, or really sensing <coughs> into that, trying to, trying to to make that really apparent to us is scary it makes us feel really unsteady we feel insecure and we don't want to feel insecure so therefore we go back and we try to find the things that are going to make us secure it takes us a long time for the most part to learn this to understand this this is an email that i got from a friend Around Christmas time, a Dharma friend who really sums this up, our tendency to want things to make us happy. She says, so the latest from my eight-year-old grandson, Seth. After all the build-up and the anticipation, the opening of stockings and gifts, he was a bit moody and grumpy. I asked him what he was feeling. He said, it's all the presents. They take you up and then they drop you.
1: <laughs>
0: he really understood that he had been caught <laughs> and that they couldn't deliver. Ah, oh, well, he said, there is still one of the gifts that hasn't dropped me yet. So there, he still was able to have some relationship with one of them before, they, before it dropped him. So aware. And she said, and we talked about how they can never deliver real happiness, only short-term pleasure, and not nearly as much of that as promised. It took me until the age of 50 to begin to understand that. (laughs) So, yeah, things take us up, but then they drop us. You know, and we get moody, and we get grumpy. Looking for that definition, who am I? Who am I? I want to tell you another story. of um, Again, on the... I think it was the last month retreat, a year, a year ago month retreat, I was teaching at Spirit Rock. And this one woman who was having a very deep practice, lots of samadhi, really very focused, very concentrated in her practice. It was about the second week or second and a half into the retreat and she came to me and she told me that there was some issue she was having that was starting to to build up for her and she said that she was walking by the stream there's a stream that runs through Spirit Rock in the spring because by May it dries up and then we don't get any rain for six months but in May we have this lovely stream and she said she was walking by the stream and there was this rock in the stream and she noticed it. It was a beautiful rock. And so she decided that she wanted to do something with that rock. And around because there's lots of nice rocks around Spirit Rock, some people make little rock sculptures. You've seen I think you see them on the moor as well. And so she decided she wanted that rock on this particular sculpture. So she took the rock out of the stream And then she put it on this this sculpture, and then she would do her walking meditation and really admire it. And she's really excited of relationship with this rock. You know, as we can when we're on retreat, we develop relationship with things that previously had very little meaning and would have very little meaning to most people, but because we're yogis, (laughs) things start taking on different kinds of meaning, which is very beautiful. You know, because we can develop different kinds of relationships with things that we, we don't ordinarily do when we're in our daily life. So she was really developing this very intimate relationship with this rock. And then a couple of days went by and the rock was gone. <laughs> and then she thought, somebody took my rock. <laughs> and it really upset her. She really, the day went on, she was so disturbed. Who took my rock? And this whole, her, her samadhi, her, her, you know, all this, this balance and everything, she just got really disturbed. And then she came and she told me about it. And, and then the next interview, she came back. Um. She said, the rock returned. (laughs) And it really confused her. And so she went over and looked at her rock and kind of touched the rock, and then she noticed that there was a note under the rock. (laughs) So she left me this note. She said, Dear Sharda, the rock tale continues. See, things like this do happen on retreat. Don't think think you're the only one. (laughs) The rock tale continues. Enclosed is a note I found under the rock on the sculpture. She said, then I took the rock and took the rock back to the stream, asked the stream's forgiveness, returned it to the place from which I took it. I feel very grateful to have had the opportunity I glory in the ways of this universe, Catherine. And this was what the note said under the rock. Sorry, I should have known this was somebody's special rock. Thanks for the loan, rock napper. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this whole drama. It was her rock, you know? She had a whole identity around this rock. But the wonderful thing is it became such a very important teaching for her, which we discussed in the interviews, it's just how she did that. You know, somebody who was very... I mean, she was. her samadhi was so good in her, in her concentration and her... Her meditation and it just how that disturbed her as soon as she identified and took possession of the rock and then her ability to actually see that whole pattern how it happened how it became me how it became i mine and then returning it back to the stream asking forgiveness and letting it go very powerful teaching and I love that um, story because I think it, is, it really symbolizes what we do. It's the pattern of what we do. Whatever it is, it becomes mine. And then we get into the whole dramatic relationship with things. This is the human predicament. This is what we do. It's like things become an extension of our body. There's like, there's our, there's like the rock, you know, is probably no different than her arm or her hand. And it reminded me of something that happened at Guy House a number of years ago when somebody um, was a a personal retreatant, or a work retreatant, I'm not sure which, but he'd been here for a little while and he decided that he wanted to make the yogis a cake, which I suppose maybe in those days they could, maybe they still can, I don't know, but he decided he wanted to make a cake. And so he had been here for a couple of months and um, so he was also quite, you know, in his Meditation and quite quiet and still, and so he made this cake, and you know, he was very mindful, and he was very happy that he was going to be able to offer this to the yogis and this generosity and uh, this spirit. And it was a very similar thing. Is he realized that he became the cake? That he became so worried what people were going to think and if people were going to like it and if they didn't like it and they found out it was him what were they going to think of him and and he said and he came also came in an interview and he said you know I was the cake you know I, there was no difference between me and the cake i completely possessed that that became my whole identity in that day in the same way, he saw it. He had the, the recognition of mind to be able to see, yeah, that's, I'm defining myself. I'm becoming the cake. And what people will think about me. Or maybe even what the managers would think about him that he spent so long in the kitchen or he made a mess or whatever it was, you know. However it is that we start to get so worried. And then that becomes the whole of who we are, who we become. This overlay on top of reality of, of bare reality of pure awareness of pure consciousness itself and this is the identification this way that we configure into somebody we configure into the personality of who we are and, and take that for who we are the, the holding the identification the, um, the definition of ourselves this whole, and this this whole support in our culture for this self-interest. What's in it for me? What, what, how is this going to help me? How can I build myself up? I, I, I found this, um, it's almost unbelievable. I can't even believe this is for real. Um, when I was traveling on the airplane, I always buy the newspaper and read it pretty thoroughly. And um, there's just this tiny little article in, in May newspaper when I was traveling and it just again really shows how we as a culture are really getting out there. It's the FAA, which is the Federal Aviation Administration, filed a, uh, the FAA filed proposed regulations to ensure that it can enforce an existing law that prohibits obtrusive advertising in zero gravity, <laughs> which means out in space. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Objects placed in orbit, if large enough, could be seen by people around the world for long periods of time, the FAA said. For instance, outsized. outside billboards deployed by a space company into low Earth orbit could appear as large as the moon and be seen (laughs) be seen without a telescope the FAA said I I think it really was in the newspaper (laughs) Big and bright advertisements also might hinder astronomers, the FAA said. However, the FAA lacks the authority to enforce the existing law. (laughs) It's just unbelievable, you know, what we're we're doing so that we can continue to cultivate the idea that we need to have things to find out who we are. <clears throat> and then Layout Tsao, says from the Tao Te Ching, if you realize you have enough, you are truly rich. Be content with what you have. Rejoice in the way things are. When you realize there is nothing lacking, the whole world belongs to you. If you realize you have enough you are truly rich and in a way that is our practice to realize we why would we want anything more than what we have we have so much just in our being itself when we recognize our qualities and the beauty and the love that we have that we possess already if we let go a little we get a little happiness if we let go a lot we get a lot of happiness if we let go completely we get complete happiness so our practice is one of letting go a path of letting go how am i holding on what am i clinging to What am I clinging to that I think is going to make me complete, therefore not seeing the completeness, the totality of who I already am? About three weeks ago, I was traveling home from the east coast of Boston where I was teaching back to California, and I arrived at the um, airport in San Francisco after traveling with my colleague, it's about a six-hour flight actually, and um, got off the plane, went down to the baggage claim, and waiting for our bags, and I heard my name come over the loudspeaker at the San Francisco airport, um, which is a different name than I actually have, and now I have to tell you because I want to tell you what came over this. <laughs> my name is actually Henrietta, which is my old name. So over the loudspeaker came, well, Henrietta Rogal, please report to gate 78. And I went, what? You know, San Francisco International Airport, you know, what do they want from me? And then I looked, and said, oh, my handbag, I left it on the plane. So I went back to the United counter to see how I could get back to security. And I said, I have to get back to gate 78. Can you help me? They said, well, do you have your ID? And I said, no. Mm-hmm. They said, well, then you can't go through. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what am I going to do? And they said, well, are you traveling with anybody? And I said, yes. So they said, well, go get it, him to get, get it because you can't go through security without your ID. So I had to go back to baggage, baggage claim, tell my friend to go to the United mm-hmm. Counter and get a pass with his ID, He'd go through the gate, get my purse. They called ahead. He got my purse came back and I was very relieved. A little anxious, not too much. And so happy, we had to get in the taxi, get going, and and then I found out the taxi was going to be some exorbitant amount of money, much more than I expected. So I opened my handbag to see how much money I had in my handbag, knowing that I had a fair amount of money in there, and it was all gone. All my money stolen out of my handbag. I think it was about $200, not too much, about $200, and so that moment of,
1: ah, oh,
0: $200. And it was very interesting to watch my whole relationship of what happened just then, because it was like, oh, but, you know, I, my colleague sitting there with me, my, my Dharma teacher colleague, you know, probably watching all of my reactions, you know. <laughs> and <I'm, laughs> So I'm going, whoa. well, I, you know, but I really care. Oh, no, I don't care. You know, it doesn't matter. (laughs) $200, oh, that's nothing, you know. but uh, No, but it's $200, you know, and just sort of watching myself kind of go back and forth between, you know, really being attached to the $100, to the $200, and then feeling like, oh, no, I can let it go. Let it go. It's not a big deal. And so I was just kind of going through that for about five, ten minutes, and then my, my colleague had some money to loan me as I could pay for the taxi. And then it was a process I went through for about the next four or five hours of just really looking at my whole attachment to $200. It's a little like the story that Catherine was telling earlier. And then I really got how if I was holding on to that $200, that there was a way that it was kind of defining me that I needed that. That was really important to my welfare, to my well-being, to, you know, to my existence, and that without it I was deficient, I would be, you know, poor, that I wouldn't be able to have something. There's a whole story that I was building up around it, and I really saw that fundamentally it didn't matter at all. In fact, that whoever got that $200, you know, well, they felt that they needed it. Perhaps, you know, it's helping them out in some way. I really was fine. And I got to this place where it was so clear to me that if I held on to that $200, it was just going to constrict me and block me and hold me in. And, and I didn't want that, and I just let it go. And it was really quite remarkable because then what I found is that i hadn't been giving the money away to charities that i always do there was some way that i started kind of getting some kind of mindset that i needed the money and i just kind of went no and i wrote out all these checks (laughs) and gave all this money away i gave a lot of money away and it felt great i just gave money this organization that organization i just let it go and the next day something really shifted in me. There was this real whole sense of knowing that I didn't need it. I didn't need anything. You know, at that, that time, it was like, ah, I just really felt the sense of freedom in myself of not holding on to anything for that sense of who I thought I was. And it was, it was a, like... Catherine said it was a £4.50 teaching. This was a $200 teaching, and it was really worth it. It was worth every penny of that $200 for me to really recognize the, the, the truth of what happens when I hold on in that way. When I cling on, It that was my $200. Mine. <laughs> <laughs> and somebody took it from me, no it wasn't was, was it mine you know it's just a particular perspective that we put on top of reality maybe it was just mine for the time it was in my handbag you know maybe it, who knows but did I really have any way to possess that or control that and there was really this such a deep sense of freedom in myself around that So we're figuring this out. You know, we might ask the question, how do we do? Well, how do we really live our life in a way that we're not clinging, we're not holding, we're not identifying? This is what we want. We want to live from this place of integrity. We want to live from this place of our wisdom, our deepest wisdom. How do we do it? We are all figuring this out together. We're taking the precious teachings that we've received from the Buddha and we're making sense out of it. We don't know how to do that. And so some of us who have been practicing a little bit longer, we can offer some of our, our wisdom, some of our understanding, but we're all figuring it out. Life is tough. I want to read this poem that you've probably heard from Jack Cornfield. Uh, it's not from Jack Cornfield, but was in his book After the Ecstasy, The Laundry. Sort of a reminder of this, life is tough. It's called reverse living. Life is tough. It takes a lot of your time, all your weekends. And what do you get at the end of it? Death. (laughs) (laughs) A great reward. I think that the life cycle is all backwards. You should die first and get it out of the way. (laughs) Then you live 20 years in an old age home. You are kicked out when you're too young. You get a gold watch. You go to work. You work 40 years until you're young enough to enjoy your retirement. You go to college. You party until you're ready for high school. You become a little kid. You play. You have no responsibilities. You become a little boy or girl. You go back into the womb. You spend your last nine months floating and you finish off as a gleam in somebody's eye. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: So life is tough. You know, we're really trying to figure this out. And I think that you know, in our practice, in a most simple way, really what we have to take with us is mindfulness is our practice of mindfulness so that tool that 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 what we're how we're learning to pay attention to be here i call mindfulness our the golden thread that weaves through all of our experience we can take this golden thread with us and just keep weaving it through everything that we do and, and and with that mindfulness, then every moment becomes as important as any other moment. There's no hierarchy. Somebody's asking about there's no hierarchy when we bring in this golden thread of our mindfulness. And we will make mistakes. That's how we learn. We we will make mistakes. We will do it wrong. We we will have Um, lots and lots of difficulties and problems. And then we continue to bring that thread of mindfulness to see what can be understood, to see what can be learned, can be discovered, so that we can gain insight and understanding and then apply it to the situation where it comes next. And we know that our actions have great consequences. All of our actions have consequences so we want to bring our mindfulness, the power of our mindfulness to everything that we do because we know that, that w- w- whatever we do can create pain and suffering for ourselves and others. And so to be very watchful, to be caring, to pay attention. I have to read you one more kind of funny thing that kind of shows how small, very tiny small actions have great consequences. A lesson to be learned from one typing the wrong email address. A Minneapolis couple decided to go to Florida to thaw out during a particularly icy winter. They planned to stay at the same hotel Where they spent their honeymoon 20 years earlier. Because of hectic schedules, it was difficult to coordinate their travel schedules. So the husband left Minnesota and flew to Florida on Thursday, with his wife flying down the following day. The husband checked into the hotel. There was a computer in his room, so he decided to send an email to his wife. However, he accidentally left out one letter in her email address and without realizing his error, sent the email. Meanwhile, somewhere in Houston, Texas, a widow had just returned home from her husband's funeral. He was a minister who was called home to glory following a heart attack. The widow decided to check her email, expecting messages from relatives and friends. After reading the first message, she screamed and fainted. The widow's son rushed into the room, found his mother on the floor, and saw the computer screen which read, To my loving wife. Subject, I've arrived. (laughs) Date, October 16th, 2004, which was the day that he died. I know you're surprised to hear from me. they have computers here now (laughs) and you are allowed to send emails to your loved one I've just arrived and have been checked in I see that everything has been prepared for your arrival tomorrow (laughs)
1: looking
0: forward to seeing you then (laughs) hope your journey is as uneventful as mine was. P.S. Sure is freaking hot down here. (laughs) It might be a true story. (laughs) So... Sometimes we do things intentionally and sometimes we do things unintentionally and nevertheless there are consequences to what we do. But we are all really trying to figure this out. And I want to just, you know, kind of remind us, and I was telling somebody this in an interview the other day, you know, as I said in the Donna talk. The Theravadan tradition, in the way that we practice it, has only been in the West, in, in, the, in Europe and in the North American continent, for about 35 years. In these Dharma centers, with the kind of practice that we do, of sitting and walking, with the kind of schedule that we do, and we're really only learning, because the practice in the Theravadan tradition in the East was mostly for 2500 years practiced in monasteries it's a practice that has been primarily done by monks and nuns in robes ordained and the teachings from the time of the buddha were given to the monks and nuns and very rarely to the lay people to the householders some teachings were given to the householders but it's said that the highest teachings were not given to the householders. They were only given to those who had left, gone into homelessness, gone into ordination. So it is only very recent, in fact, I think in our own lifetime, that we are receiving some of the highest teachings of the Buddha as householders, as people who are, find ourselves figuring out how to take these teachings into our daily life uh, in relationships, with money, with jobs, with families, um, uh, f- with, with the pr- pressures, the social pressures, the economic pressures that we have on us. We're learning how to apply these teachings into our householder life, into our lay life. And even the first 10 years that I was practicing uh, from the late 70s, when I would do long, intensive retreats, there was was really not much emphasis on integration from those retreats at all. I remember the first three-month retreat I did at at the Insight Meditation Society, when the retreat ended after three months, we had a party. (laughs) We celebrated. And so, you know, I I remember the first, you know, this night we dressed up in costumes. You know, people just kind of got things and dressed up and, you know, my teacher Joseph put a big crown on his head, you know, and he played the king and, you know, we had dharma follies and we had movies and, you know, we had, you know, drama enactments and we were bouncing off a wall. (laughs) We were... (laughs) we had no possibility of integrating that, the, the depth of our concentration and our samadhi and our insights. It was just like, go back out in the world and deal with it. And there were a lot of difficulties that happened for people because we needed help. And how do we make that transition? And so that, that transition from being in retreat into daily life is actually an art that we learn. It's a skill. It's something that we develop. To be able to move in and out from our meditative uh, environments into the harder, challenging world that we live in. It took us as retreat centers in our with our teachers about ten years before we started really getting that right. And I think we're very sophisticated right now. I mean, now we you know at IMS they have five days of integration where there's some sitting, and then they talk a little bit, and then they go back to sitting, and then the next day they talk a little bit more and do a little and then they go back into silence. <laughs> you know, it's titrated now, you know. And so, so we've really learned what's needed for us more and more as we flow in and out of meditation and worldly life and meditation. And so, so we're all really just learning what's needed, how, it's, how, how, to, how to become more, more skilled, how to actually bring our wisdom and our compassion and our insights and our love into the challenge of daily life activity. So I say this also to um, uh, remind you that it's not like something that you should already know. And when you leave and you, you start to encounter some challenges, it's not because you're doing it wrong or you haven't understood or you lost it, you know, or you need to get back to a retreat so that you can gain your insights again. This is all, it's all part of the learning. It's all part of the practice. Not just when we're on retreat, but when we're off of retreat, the way that we actually take our insights and our wisdom and our meditations into our daily life, and and what and the way that we learn, then we can offer that to others. It's because we've become like a teaching sangha. You know, we're all helping each other and supporting each other as we go along and figure this out: how to be householders and Buddhist practitioners and live the depth of the teachings of wisdom and compassion. Buddhism is changing, Buddhism is taking on a very different face as the years go by as we begin to learn how to uh, take the teachings into the world. And one of the aspects that I think is starting to become more apparent is, is bringing in an aspect of femininity and the aspects of femininity into what's been a very patriarchal religion. So so this having more women teachers and having more of the integration practices, having more emphasis on emotions, having more in- emphasis on relationship, feeling, this uh, family, more family, community. I think all of this is an aspect of what can be called a more feminine aspect. And so it's a kind of a union. I think what's happening more and more is this union of the masculine and the feminine energies coming together more and more. I want to read this um, poem, this, um, actually it's called A short, a Very Short Sutra on the Meeting of the Buddha and the Goddess. And it was written by a man called Rick Fields, who was a very well-loved practitioner who died when he was about 50, about five or six years ago. um, I'm not sure what his complication was, but he was a very dedicated practitioner. And I want to share this with you. I'm very, very touched by it as a woman. By Rick Fields. Thus I have made up. (laughs) Thus I have made up. Once the Buddha was walking along the forest path in the oak grove of Ojai, that's in California, walking without arriving anywhere or having any thought of arriving or not arriving, and lotuses shining with the morning dew miraculously appeared under every step, soft as silk beneath the toes of the Buddha. When suddenly, out of the turquoise sky, dancing in front of his half-shut inward-looking eyes, Shimmering like a rainbow or a spider's web, transparent as the dew on a lotus flower, the goddess appeared, quivering like a hummingbird in the air before him. She, for for she surely was a she, as the Buddha could clearly see with his eye of discriminating awareness, was (laughs) (laughs) was mostly red in color. Though when the light shifted, she flashed like a rainbow. She was naked except for the usual flower ornaments goddesses wear. Her long blue hair was deep blue, her two eyes fathomless pits of space, and her third eye a bloodshot ring of fire. The Buddha folded his hands together and greeted the goddess thus, Oh goddess, why are you blocking my path? Before I saw you I was happily going nowhere. Now I'm not sure where to go. (laughs) (laughs) You can go around me, said the goddess, twirling on her heels like a bird darting away, but just a little way away. Or you can come after me. This is my forest too. You can't pretend I'm not here. With that the Buddha sat, supple as a snake, solid as a rock, beneath a bow tree that sprang full leaves to shade him. Perhaps we should have a chat, he said. After after years of arduous practice at the time of the morning star, I penetrated reality, and now, not so fast, Buddha. I am reality. The earth stood still, the oceans paused the wind listened. A thousand a thousand arahats, bodhisattvas, and dakinis magically appeared to hear what would happen in the conversation. <laughs> I know I take my life in my hand, said the Buddha, but I am known as the fearless one, so here goes. And he and the goddess, without further words, exchanged glances, Light rays, like sunbeams, shot forth so bright that even Saraputra, the all-seeing one, had to turn away. And then they exchanged minds, and there was a great silence, as vast as the universe, that contains everything. And then they exchanged bodies and clothes, and the Buddha arose as the goddess, and the goddess arose as the Buddha, and so on, back and forth for a hundred thousand kopas. If you meet the Buddha, you meet the goddess. If you meet the goddess, you meet the Buddha. Not only that, this, the Buddha is the goddess. The goddess is the Buddha. And not only that, this, the Buddha is emptiness and the goddess is bliss. And that is what and what not you are. It's true. Let's sit quietly
1: for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.